Hello, Internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy. Alex. You hit a milestone recently for living in Asheville. You voted here for the oh, first time. I was like, I've, I've been here for six months, I, I guess. Yes, yes, I did vote. You I voted here for it. You voted in the primaries. You, like, filled out your sample ballot. I printed it out for you. I researched the candidates, which is more than I ever did in Florida. Really? What the hell did you do in Florida? Voted for the ones that said Dem next to them. So you didn't vote in primaries? No. I was the problem, but I'm getting better. <laughs> oh, God. Well, okay, you know what? I, I want to have some empathy. Um, I've probably told this story before, but, like, for me, growing up, it was very much like, you vote. You vote. You vote every chance you get. You vote in the city shit. You vote in the primaries. You vote in everything. Because I had two parents who lived here for over for like something like 15 years without the right to vote. Sure. So. Meanwhile, in my household, it was my dad going, hey, give me that. I'll fill out the right one for you. Which I I had to deprogram. (laughs) I hate that so much. Oh my God. I was like, I try, here's the thing. I printed out these ballots. I printed them out for you and for Mo. Um, and I printed them out for Stephanie and myself, and these, these are just sample ballots online, and I knew we're all gonna, you know, vote in the Democratic primary, and I was sitting here just, like, not trying to talk about who's on my ballot, because I don't want to sway anybody, and I'm like, no, I want, I don't, I don't want to be that person who, like, because I have opinions about our local politics, and by the way, for any of y'all who don't know, Andy and I live in the district that Madison Cawthorn fucking represents. That Madison Cawthorn and all of his election, like, yard signs and shit are just him in a wheelchair. And I really hope that some brave, industrious liberal out there is running around taping pictures of him naked in a bed instead. That's fun. I like that. Yeah. But yeah, like, it's, it's, so that's, that's the primary. We, we just voted in the primary to figure out who's going to be running against that piece of shit. So, like, we are not necessarily an inconsequential district. You were more consequential in Orlando. Sure. But all the same, it's, I'm sitting here trying to not do any swaying, because for me, I'm like, I take secret ballots very, very, very um, strongly. Like, they're very important to me. I will happily share who I vote for with anyone who asks, but I think it's really important to, like, honor that bit of privacy. Um, Because I've heard stories of people, especially um, young women, or women who were young in like, especially in the 70s and 80s and are older now, but talking about how like, oh yeah, no, my father used to just grab my ballot and fill it out and say, okay, you're going to vote for these people. Sure, yeah, literally, and I'm not even a young woman. Well, I mean, the thing that I always wondered there is like, it's a secret ballot. Why wouldn't you just like get in there and then vote for other people? But admittedly, a difference is that you and I have access to the internet, so you could research who you wanted ahead of time. Right. Absolutely. And it also probably didn't help 
it, it probably doesn't help your case that here all of our local elections, like at the city level, are nonpartisan. So you're not going to get a D next to there. The primaries we voted in featured several really horrible people on them. Oh, absolutely. There was um, so we've got a uh, a guy I believe running for senator, Brian O'Connell, Bruce O'Connell, something like that. Something like that. And this dude's campaign, his commercial, which came on the other day, is very insidious because it's covered in blue. It's covered in blue imagery, which is, you know, historically the, like, coding of the Democratic Party. Their shit comes up in blue. And he's a a super conservative, hard-leaning Republican guy running for senator. Mm. And if I had just watched his ads without the sound on and then not bothered to vote, I would probably sit there and go, oh, Connell, yeah, all of this shit looked like it was Democrat. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'll I share this. And this, I, I'm going to say this as like, hey, everybody, this is just a little bit of a lesson here. Um, we voted on a Democratic primary ballot, and we have a sheriff's primary coming up. And yeah. we have our current sheriff who is like, he's not great, he's not bad, he's very... He's still a cop. Big cab. He's a super, just like moderate Democrat, like very modest police reforms. I'm not gonna lie, we live in Asheville. He's a black man. He might have gotten elected on more than a little white guilt. Um, he's not f- amazing, but he's better than the asshole Republican who's leading that race right now. The person running against this dude on the primary is a motherfucking constitutional sheriff. And if you don't know what a constitutional sheriff is, this is a movement among cops and sheriffs who insist that essentially the um, Constitution states that sheriffs at a local level have ultimate authority at a local level to enforce all the laws, to figure out how they're going to just basically reign over everything. That they have jurisdiction even over the federal government Hmm. in their local areas. And you would not know this from just this dude's website. I I had to Google around and I found a write-up in our local newspaper that explained all of this. I was looking at his website and I'm like, you know, there's nothing here that's... You know, he doesn't look amazing. He was, you know, he's ex-military and was a, like, fucking contractor in Iraq and Afghanistan for a while. I'm like, I fucking hate that. And like, but But he also, like, his website has shit that sounds kind of nice, like an accountability panel for for the cops. And, you know, it took digging to be like, oh, wait, no, you're a fucking sociopath libertarian who also, like, voted for Obama and then voted for Trump in the election after that? Like... Speaks to me of a weak spine. I'm just like, you know what? I don't need to fuck with you. I'm gonna deal with this mother... I'm gonna deal with the evil I know rather than deal with this fucking-ass bullshit because I do not need federal agents marching through the streets of Asheville to take the place over from the fucking congressional or constitutional sheriff. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I will support the constitutional sheriff when he adopts constitution-signed era law enforcement technology. (laughs) This brother rolls up with a flintlock and a musket rifle. Then he can do whatever he is capable of doing with that armament. Yeah. 
Um, but all, the ultimate lesson there is um, maybe don't do what Andy said that he did and just vote down the party lines. I mean, obviously, on your general, that's going to happen more. If you're fortunate enough to have a place where there are actual independents, fucking research that shit. If you can vote for a third party that isn't complete bullshit, check it out. Like, do, but do take the time to do your research. You know, it took me an hour, maybe an hour and a half to research everyone on my ballot. And frankly, I was looking for people. I was looking for reasons to not vote for people. I'm going through platforms and being like, oh, this motherfucker says um, defund the police is bullshit. Fuck you. Uh, okay, this one's got good environmental policies. This one's good here. This one's good here. Um, oh, you actually suck when it comes to um, our affordable housing issues. Yep. Fuck you. Yep. Like, yep. And, and for the most part, doing that process of elimination, I was able to find a choice on every, on every race. Same, and, and to, for my own personal experience, it's about the same. I you know probably spent an hour, hour and a half and there were, there were several candidates where you read the first half of the paragraph and you're like, okay, looking good so far. And you read the second half of the paragraph and you're like, oh my God, I'm so glad. I, okay, I'm not voting for you. Yeah, and that's the point. Just like, look for that stuff. If you don't see a reason to knock somebody off, go ahead and write down their name and then try and dig just a little bit deeper and just see if you can find a reason, generally speaking, not to vote for somebody like... Yeah. It doesn't take that long. And do this especially when it comes to the general and you got like all the weird propositions and shit because all that's worded stupid a lot of the time. Just number one, vote often. Vote in every election you possibly can, including primaries, and research your shit. Like it is literally the bare minimum. And just to wrap us out of this, I I've, I've heard it said from a lot of left-leaning people on Twitter that like... The Biden administration and especially all the god-awful shit that's gone on with the Supreme Court recently, like, this is the most blatant slap in the face. It doesn't really matter. They're going to fuck you over and say they can't do anything when they have the power to do everything. A lot of people are upset. A lot of people are disenfranchised. And I'm reminded of something. I think you were the first person to really push this thought onto me, but, like... The thing you can do, even in a dark world where it doesn't matter who's in the White House and it doesn't matter who's in Congress and it doesn't matter who's in the Senate, you can vote in, on your small town elected officials. You can, you can vote for your city councilman. You can vote for your mayor. You can vote for the people who have a much more likely chance of having a direct input on your actual life. And so you absolutely should, disenfranchisement aside. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship, Civic uh, Edition. <laughs> uh, None of our topics have to do with civics. No, so it's important we get this in now. But uh, yeah, speaking of our topics, like every episode, today we're going to talk about something one of us loves, the other's going to talk about something we hate, and then we're going to take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And Alex, you have the love. Indeed I do. And Andy, this one's going to be weird and wacky and probably kind of all over the place. I welcome you to interject as much as you think of. Our titles are getting so much longer recently, <laughs> and I'm not mad about it, genuinely. Eh, this one won't be a long title, but it'll, be, it'll take some figuring out. Sure. So, 
Um, Andy, understanding this is already going to be a wide-ranging, slightly ranty topic, um, I want to start us off on an easygoing note, just by way of intro. If you don't mind trying, and you mentioned that this was something you did look into ahead of time uh, when I sent you the notes, I'd like you to name me five bands you enjoy. I want one from the 60s, one from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s. The caveat is that each should have just four members. Okay. And yeah, I, I spent maybe five minutes looking up, was this band in this era? Was this band four pieces? And obviously some bands are like in multiple eras, but like they were successful in this era. Well, and I've already forgotten half my answers, so let's see how many of these I get wrong. Because honestly, this is tougher when you actually have to think about it. For the 60s, I'm going to go safe and I'm going to go with The Doors. Doors. Which I think is actually counterintuitive to a lot of what you're going to say, though they are a four-piece band. Uh, you know what? I'm here for this discussion. I think I might even reference them briefly at one point, so... Okay, so off. for the 60s, we have The Doors. For the 70s, which is maybe the hardest, but I'm... Like, I, I was raised on hair metal and prog rock... And my tastes these days are like alt rock. All all genres rife with five, six, seven member bands. That said, seventies is maybe the easiest one. Well, for the seventies, I'm gonna go ahead and say Black Sabbath. Okay, great, Black Sabbath. For the 80s, it's it's fleeing... Oh, from the 80s, I actually planned around this. For the 80s, I'm going to say Queen. Interesting. I would have put Queen in the 70s, but... Well, that was that was why, like, I looked up what was what was Queen doing in the '80s. That's where We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions. That's where that album came from. They were, you know, what they they finally straddled those two decades. Yeah, go for it. The '90s, which is actually the hardest one for me to think of. Like, I had to look up famous '90s rock bands just to like get my brain kind of working in this space. And it reminded me that the Red Hot Chili Peppers exist. Okay. Also a band that started off in the 80s, but I get it. They're biggest in the 90s. Um, either that or Smashing Pumpkins. Take your pick. Um, and then I'll, I'll actually, I'll give you the 2000s and then the 2010s. For the 2000s, uh, I'm going to say stay safe and go with Fall Out Boy. The one alt-pop rock band I can think of where I know they have only four members. And then in the uh, in the modern day, but we'll, we'll go ahead and say for the uh, the 2010s, um, just because I will talk about them any chance I get. Pup, the Canadian punk rock band, which is doing amazing things and is a solid 
four-man act. Okay, I didn't even ask for the 2010s, but, uh, you know, I'm not mad about it. Uh, okay, this this gives us a few things to work with. I, Hooray! Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, so, oh, there's gonna be, there's gonna, okay, so I, Queen is a band that I definitely do want to talk about uh -huh. as a four-piece. Um, and, and, you know, this is me getting slightly ahead of myself, but, you know, Queen, I think, might be next to the Beatles or possibly the Who or Led Zeppelin. Like, those four bands are probably the most iconic four-person bands. I suppose I, sh I could have said either of the other two in the 70s. Well, the thing of it, 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 that's okay. But when I think of those bands, I'm like, I can... Not only can I name every member of them, but I feel like it's not hard to find just, like, casual music fans who can name every member of those bands. Oh, God. I, I used to be at that level, and I think I could comfortably name 50% of each of those bands, except, of course, for the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, that. well, okay, so you've got the Beatles, but, like... With Queen, you've got Freddie Mercury and Brian May and Roger Taylor and John Deacon. Sure, like you're sure. You're just like, okay, I can yeah. just I can just rattle these people off. The Who, like, and we're going to talk original lineup. The Who, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, Keith Moon, John Entwistle. And you're just like, maybe you don't know who John Entwistle is. I was about to say, that's the one I wouldn't have gotten. No, and that's okay. Like, most people who know who, like, I'm a bass player. Bass, like, John F. Wessel is important to bass players. Mm. Just, like, the shit he invented, just technologically and technique-wise. Um, Led Zeppelin, very famously. Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, Jimmy Page, John Bonham. You might not know John Paul Jones. Uh. Maybe. Like, it's possible, but, like, in the time, people did. John Paul Jones would be on fucking Letterman once a year, promoting solo shit and talking about Led Zeppelin. But, like... And, of course, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. But right. the point is, these are big four-piece acts. You talk about The Doors. I mean, we talked about The Doors on this show. We absolutely have. You know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, I think, are iconic. Fall Out Boy, I mean, I feel like I can talk about Fall Out Boy. I know you can talk about Fall Out Boy. You are one of the two people in my life who is the biggest Fall Out Boy fan I know. Okay, I appreciate that. Something that I am intrigued by is only one of these six bands actually I don't know about Pup. Does Pup have two guitar players? Um does Steven Babcock play guitar? I think so, yes. Guitarist uh I'm looking at here. Stephen Babcock is the singer, and yeah, he's he's singing he's holding a guitar. Okay, here. yeah, so you've got okay, so Pup and Fallout Boy are the two bands that I would consider in the ideal setup for a four-piece band. Okay. Where it's two guitar players, a bassist, and a drummer. Um, I'll get into that, but I, I find it interesting that that is probably... Yeah, because Queen, I mean, you know, Freddie Mercury plays pianos and guitars sometimes. Most of the time he's just singing. Um, Anthony Kiedis never really plays much. Jim Morrison famously was too inept to play any instruments. 
Uh, they don't even have a bass player. Anyway, I appreciate the spread here, and I feel like we're going to reference it a lot as okay. we're going through here. So I'm excited. I appreciate you. Andy, my love for this episode is the Rock Four Piece, specifically the assortment of four people in a band. Sure. And why I think it is the ideal setup for any rock or rock-based music act. So... If you dig into the history of rock music, there's nothing that immediately from inception suggests four members in a band is the move. Early acts like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Little Richard, they played with many more than that, including small horn sections. They almost had like small orchestras because Little Richard would play piano. He'd have a guitarist, a double bass player, a drummer, three to six horn players, which does actually make sense to me because I think about I think about like what is the music that was the most counterculture revolutionary and I think about for a time that was big band and then that became swing and jazz and and what is the four person set you're talking about here if not a swing band with the horn section and the chorus, if there's a chorus of singers, cut out. Yeah. Give the cellist an actual bass, and there you go. Yeah. And I mean, like, with the invention of the electric guitar, like, the thing that killed Big Band was the invention of the electric guitar. Sure. Because before that, you would have a guitar in the big bands, but it would have a microphone, and it was acoustic, and it wasn't really loud enough to be heard. It was part of the color of everything. But once you got an electric guitar, that had enough harmonic information that you could be loud enough to do an entire show in a full-ass crowd and people could hear you. So that's really what killed Big Band there. Mm. But, you know, an electric guitar is not a horn section. There's a certain thing you get from a horn section that's just absolutely unique. Piano, same kind of deal. Um, other bands at that era in the early rock and roll area kind of used a more traditional blues setup, like Chuck Berry or even Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They made it work with just three players. You know, the Crickets did start out as a four-piece, but the rhythm, their rhythm guitar player left, and they just continued as a three-piece. Chuck Berry pretty much would sing and play guitar, and he'd normally have a bass player and a drummer backing him up. And then in later years, like in his later career, he didn't even have that. He would just play with the house band wherever he was. Because mm. he was like, everybody knows my songs. I'm Chuck fucking Barry. You're, you, you might not be ready for this one, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. I'm doing my own drops now. Oh, God. Um, I can speak separately of the power trio, the three-piece rock band. I think that there is something... something to that assortment, it is an interesting one. Well, so now I'm playing the same game in my in my head with the power trio. So there's a drawback with the power trio, and I will talk about that though. Okay. I don't even know if you've read my notes. You might know what it is. I promise, dear listeners, I don't. <laughs> okay. So definitely not the first four-piece rock group, but arguably the most iconic is, of course, the Beatles. Right. Um, and the Beatles actually started out as a five-piece. When they originally, um, when they originally went to Hamburg, they had Stuart Sutcliffe as their bass player, and they had three guitar players. Paul McCartney played guitar, mm. and when Sutcliffe decided to leave the band and stay in Hamburg, Germany, and be an artist, Paul McCartney switched over to playing the bass. 
Fascinating. Yeah. So that is your iconic four piece. Um, now, is it iconic because of the Beatles making it iconic or I think, not? See, okay, see, I didn't even think about talking about this, but the thing about the Beatles is the Beatles became a blueprint unto themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, something I don't, I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the podcast, um, but something, an important shift that happened with the Beatles is before the Beatles... Nobody necessarily had to be writing their own songs. You know, you had the Brill Building in New York City where they had professional songwriters. You, that's where Carol King and Neil Sedaka and all of those people were writing the songs for the Isley Brothers and the Righteous Brothers and all the and Bobby Darin and all of those pop acts. Mm-hmm. They were pro songwriters. Elvis never wrote a fucking song in his life. Mm, awesome. No, and that was fine. Nobody expected them to. They were expected to just be performers, and that is totally fine. The Beatles, and the fact that they wrote their own songs, and, like, the fact that the Beatles wrote their own songs became so important that it changed all of popular rock music, and you were expected to write your own songs after that. Before that, it didn't matter. But post-Beatles... It was, it was a knock against you if you didn't write your own songs. Absolutely. So much so that, like, the pop that you and I grew up on, the, like, bubblegum, you know, your Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, NSYNC stuff, people bitched about the fact that those artists didn't write their own songs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's what pop music always was. This is just a post-Beatles landscape where artists are also, where performers are also expected to be songwriters. Okay, so whether or not it's because of the Beatles or not, what is it about the four-person, uh, the four-piece band that that works for rock? Uh, I will get to that. Let me let me finish defining this because oh please, yeah, I okay. want to use the Beatles as my template as well because I do think the Beatles have the ideal setup. I alluded to this when I talked about Pup and Fallout Boy. To me, four members steadily having bass and drums. Two guitars, one occasionally subbed for keys or piano, um, and three and two or three part harmony vocals. That is what the Beatles had, mm-hmm. and that to me is the like the iconic, is the it, best. Is it an economy of sound thing? Because I, I I do the math in my head, and that's like. Eight different sounds for four people. It there is something magical about it. Mm-hmm. Like guitar, bass, drums, and vocals is already just I I don't know, man. There's something about that that has spoken to me since I was and since I was a preteen, and it continues to speak to me. I love the fact that when you open a Rage Against the Machine album, any of them, four piece band. When you open a Rage Against the Machine album, every one of those albums has a note at the bottom that says, all sounds made by guitar, bass, drum, and vocals. Every sound on there. There is not a single thing that is not guitar, bass, drum, or vocals on any Rage Against the Machine album. Granted, Tom Morello does weird shit with effects. I was about to say, not to pick nits here, but that's more of a Tom Morello thing. Well, Tom Morello, his whole deal in Rage Against the Machine was he considered himself the DJ for the band. 
and he has actually a very simple pedal board setup, but he does crazy, insane, really unique, creative stuff with it. Mm. You know, he does shit where he does, he figured out how to make DJ scratch noises on his guitar, but it is still his guitar. It's, it's, there's something about that that has always spoken to me. I do think, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but the there is something about hearing two guitars working together, especially in a live setting, that is really, really incredible, and it works. I always think it really does work better with two guitars. It, it just, it always does. If you happen to have a guitar player or a bassist who can also play piano, that's fucking great. That is awesome. Um, you know, I know for a fact, I was just watching um, a rig rundown of Flea, um, where like they went backstage and went over like all of his equipment that he uses. And um, in amongst the equipment is a um, Fender six string bass that they would have the guitar player, Josh Klepper, something like that, play on the song where Flea comes out and plays piano. Okay. Because you still need bass in it. So yeah. they have a bass for the guitarist to play, but Flea plays piano for one song. Huh. It's cool that you have somebody who can play a piano or another interesting instrument. I was telling you before we started recording, one of the guitar players for In Excess, which is a five-piece band, um, also plays saxophone and will regularly just play saxophone on songs. Sometimes in the middle of a song, he'll play guitar and he'll play, he'll switch to saxophone. It's just a normal thing. Sure. That's always great, but two guitars, drum, bass, two or three part vocal harmony. If you can get a three part vocal harmony, if you can get three people who can sing, that is, I mean, look at Queen. I mean, yeah, I, I will wholeheartedly agree with you on the vocal harmony just being a thing that, like, makes it work right and I, i'm sitting here even thinking about all of the different five piece six piece all the other bands mostly unless you're dealing with something like meatloaf and the neverland express where there's meatloaf and there's a trio of, of other singers sure any any other rock band i'm thinking about no matter how many members, does stick to the three-part harmony. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've also got maximalist band. Like, you've got Pink Floyd, which is four members, yes, but they tour with a second, per with a percussionist, with, I think, a second keyboard player to play, like, organ and synth sounds, uh, three female backing vocalists. I think they have another guitar player who's on there as well. Like, they play, they, they have a small string section, like... They tour with a group. Mm -hmm. But it's still, you know, it's and it is a four-piece band, but that's also Pink Floyd. Like, they're fucking Pink Floyd. They're, the, they're, they're just a giant act. Right, absolutely. It's, it's a different animal. Yeah. Um, I want to say notable variations on this um, do include bands like Black Sabbath or the Sex Pistols, where the vocalist never plays an instrument. Mm -hmm. John Lydon can't play an instrument. Ozzy Osbourne can't play an instrument. They don't know how. They never learned. Um, you got U2 or Queen, where the vocalist usually doesn't play an instrument, but will occasionally pick up a guitar for a rhythm part or uh, play some keys. You know, it's not... There, there is... There are moments where Freddie Mercury will sit at a piano. There are other moments where he'll play an acoustic guitar. 
like just to add rhythm on it. Or, or Bono will play an acoustic guitar regularly for some songs on YouTube, but he spends a lot of time running around being the lead singer. Right. You know? And then, you know, you have out-of-ordinary bands like your 60s band, The Doors, which had no bass player outside of the studio. And that's always the thing I, I think about with The Doors and hearing the interview about how John Densmer basically had to be the bassist as the drummer. Well, and Ray Manzarek playing keyboard bass. Sure. Like, he just put a Fender Rhodes keyboard bass on top of his organ, and he played that. And the le- the bass player of the doors is Ray Manzarek's left hand. I've said this a hundred times. <laughs> like, it, it is his left hand. He said it in his own interviews. Like, yeah. this is this is the, the... He'd hold up his left hand and be like, this is the bass player for the doors. Although in the studio, they would bring in a studio bass. I was about to say, that is kind of shitty to the studio bassists. Yeah, but they were hired anyway. Yeah. Like, that was kind of the point. Fair enough. But, um, you know, you, you'd have that. Or Fish. Um, Fish is a band with guitar, bass, drums, and keys. All of them play an instrument. But also, they all sing. All four of them sing. And there are different songs where all of them will, where each of them, kind of like the Beatles, each of them will sing lead on a different song. Kind of like Queen. Kind of like Queen. I mean, the only difference there is that John Deacon never... John Deacon would sing a little bit of background vocals here and there to fill out their very big songs. Yeah. But by and large, he he didn't prefer it, and he never sang lead as far as I ever saw. I'm trying to remember if there's, like, one John Deacon song. Probably I'm misremembering. He wrote some of their best songs, because he wrote Another One Bites the Dust. He wrote You're My Best Friend. He wrote I Want to Break Free. Sure. He wrote some of their most excellent songs. I would argue he might be... I, I think John Deacon is the best songwriter in Queen. I mean, where's the lie? I'm saying. But, but you know, he wasn't the major singer. But you kind of don't need it because Roger Taylor and Brian May were... are Both of them could have been lead singers in their own bands. There's a world where Roger Taylor is like Phil Collins level. Yeah. And he's a good enough singer to do it. Like, that band just as, is a tour de force as vocalists. Um, but, yeah. So... What I love about the four-piece rock band, and I'm still not going to answer your question directly because I'm kind of going (laughs) to... No, here's the point. I'm going to answer it by saying what I dislike about the other arrangements. Okay. So I think there's a reason the four-piece is probably the most enduring version of a rock band setup. Five-piece bands frequently become the vision of just one or two members. Guns N' Roses was axles to the detriment of everyone. Mm. It was a problem. This, even despite the fact that we could all see the star power of Slash, or how great a songwriter Duff McKagan was as the bassist. Like, and they were all great players in Guns N' Roses, but it was Axel's vision. Sure. And Axel and Slash were kind of the famous ones there, but it was Axel's vision. Um... You know, and and how many members of Aerosmith can you name who aren't Steven Tyler and Joe Perry? Or of the Rolling Stones who aren't Mick and Keith? I'm the wrong person to ask, but I get your point. Yeah. And actually, you're the perfect person to ask because you're not really a fan. You're not really a fan of the Rolling Stones. And I don't think you're that much of a fan of Aerosmith. I, so that, that's the thing. I deeply, deeply love Aerosmith. And I could not say... 
a single other band member's name. And that's totally fine. You absolutely don't need to. But the point is, that's kind of what happens with five pieces. They really do become one or two people's creative vision. Sure. Um, hell, three-fifths of the Beach Boys have the last name Wilson, and most people can't name a single member other than Brian Wilson and maybe Mike Love. Fuck Mike Love. Fuck Mike Love. But still, you you maybe know Mike Love's name. You probably know Brian Wilson's name. Carl and Dennis Wilson? A lot of people don't know. And poor Al Jardine. Nobody remembers Al Jardine. <laughs> you know who remembers Al Jardine? My dad. Because <laughs> this, this is fascinating to me. My dad has so many Al Jardine solo CDs that, like... I did not know Al Jardine was in the Beach Boys until this second you saying it, but I recognized the name Al Jardine instantly from looking at my dad's CD collection. You are maybe the only motherfucker in the world who knows Al Jardine as anything other than a Beach Boy. I did not know Al Jardine had solo records. I feel special. <laughs> Al Jardine should feel special. <laughs> He's still alive. <laughs> to your point, I'm I'm sitting here being like... God, for, for as much as I love them, I couldn't tell you a single member of Maiden or Priest outside of the lead singers. Um, Steve Harris is the bassist of Iron Maiden and is arguably the most, the creative influencer there. Hmm. Like, he guides that band. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Kiss is... A four-piece. Is a four-piece, and it is... The Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley show, though I would argue people remember the names Ace Freely and Peter Chris, but not for not not for their contributions to Kiss as much as for leaving Kiss. I, here's the thing: I don't think a lot of people know them for leaving Kiss because there are still Kiss casual Kiss fans who don't even know. That Peter, Chris, and Ace Freely aren't in that band anymore. They've never heard of Fraley's Comet. Yeah, I should have guessed that when you were willing to dress up as Peter, Chris. No one wants to be Peter, Chris, Lois. Not even Peter, Chris. There's a shit ton of Family Guy fans who know Peter, Chris is not in Kiss anymore. That's for sure, though. But, like, I remember watching that Kiss episode of Family Guy, and they never explicitly, like, make it clear that those people are not Peter and Ace. Fair enough. The only person who is explicitly name-dropped in there and is a speaking character is Gene Simmons. And I don't even know if Gene Simmons actually voiced himself in that episode. Oh, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he decided there wasn't enough money in it for him. Oh, probably. So, uh, uh, oh, kiss. Three pieces, to get back on topic, in the same vein, are usually all about one person. The usual lead guitarist slash singer, who is also usually, I'm, I'm using these usuallys pointedly, the primary songwriter. Mm -hmm. Green Day, Motorhead, Nirvana, all of Jimi Hendrix's projects. And this is to say nothing of the fact that most bands in this orientation still hire one or two additional side players to fill out their sound. Sure. You asked me a moment ago why it is that I love two guitars in the four-piece why that matters to me. And I'm gonna tell you, this is a sidebar. Think about a studio situation and understanding that most recorded guitars you hear are actually at least two 
often four and as many as a dozen or more individual guitar tracks. Earlier, when you when you and I were hanging out, you started singing a Sum 41 song. I saw a TikTok maybe a couple of months ago where someone actually was breaking down the stems of Sum 41's Fat Lip. Mm. And I did not realize this about Fat Lip. That song has five guitar tracks. They double tracked two guitars in the left speaker. So there's two guitars on the left side. There's two guitars on the right side. And then there is a clean guitar going right down the middle. Okay. Combine that with the bass and the drums, and that's why the chorus of that song sounds so fucking huge. Because there's five fucking guitars playing on the track. Okay. I know for a fact that Metallica's Enter Sandman has, I think it's 12 guitar tracks on it. And it was just double tracking guitars over and over and over again to create this giant booming wall of sound. That's what you do in a studio. And that is especially true now in the days of digital workstations. Because it used to be if you had a four track... You had to, like, if you wanted to double track your guitars, you had to, like, put guitars and vocals on the same track. And if there was a mistake on one, you were fucked because tape was expensive. Eventually, you figured out how to do eight tracks, 16 tracks, 32 tracks. You know, the Beatles famously did this by attaching a bunch of them together. Queen did this to get mm -hmm. the giant vocals in Bohemian Rhapsody. But... The point is, now, with digital audio workstations, you can have as many tracks as you want. You can have a thousand tracks. But just about any guitar song you hear, it's even if there's only one guitar player, there is at least two, probably more like four or five, and very possibly a dozen, two dozen, just a shitload of guitar tracks on there. But with a four-piece, you kind of get what you get. So, can that big and full sound be replicated with just one guitar? Whether you're in a power trio where there's one guitarist, or you're in a four-piece where there is only one guitarist. You know, yes, often, and there are definitely bands that have done it. You know, Black Sabbath, as far as I've ever known, only ever had Tony Iommi playing guitar. Van Halen only ever had Eddie Van Halen playing guitar, as far as I ever as far as I ever knew. Um, but big bands, a lot of big bands, tend to add an extra player if they only have one guitar. Usually a hired gun, and they'll fill them out. Green Day has had a second a rhythm guitar player on staff since 1999. I think his name is Jason White. He's not a member of Green Day. Sure. He's appeared in like some of their videos. Like I've I remember the Wake Me Up When September Ends video. He's in that video. It's like the first time they ever put him in a video. But then was he on the Uno Dos Tres album covers? No, that was still Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Dirt, and Trey Cool because they are Green Day and he's just a hired gun. Did you just Google Jason White? I did, and just corroborated everything. And now I'm thinking about the horn players in No Doubt, and I'm sad. I mean, you know what? That's fair. Like, truly, that that is fucking tragic for them. Um, 
So yeah, Green Day has had another guitar. And, and you know, I watched the Bullet in a Bible concert video. And, you know, I remember watching Billy Joe Armstrong performing Holiday and he's not holding a guitar. Right. He's running out around the stage all over the place holding a microphone. Most songs he plays a guitar. That one, you know, they have Jason White play guitar. And Billy Joe Armstrong gets to run around. The rest of the time, they have two guitars filling out the sound. Sure, sure. Nirvana hired the for- hired former Germs guitarist Pat Smear as their touring player in 1993. And then he became, after Kurt Cobain's death, Pat Smear actually became a founding member of the Foo Fighters. Hmm. Which is a fucking six-piece, by the way. <laughs> I love that you just keep track of this in your head. Uh, it's just, Yeah. So, and, and then, okay, um, LHR alumni, Meet Me at the Altar. Mm-hmm. They have hired guns, play guitar and bass, because Tia Campbell plays both guitar and bass in all their recordings and writes all the guitar and bass lines. They are a three-piece band where one person plays guitar and bass, but, like, she can't play both instruments at the same time in a live show, so she plays guitar, and they hired another guitarist and another bassist. Okay. Who, you know, they're not members of the band. They're just touring players. Um, and that's fine. But wouldn't it be better if the bands were actually covering their own material in a live setting? Wouldn't I, that be more satisfying? I, I see your point. The... The devil's advocacy I want to give is I I appreciate spreading the wealth around and I appreciate these hired guns getting to be members of Green Day and Nirvana and be employed as touring musicians and all that and gun to my head an hour ago i would not have been able to tell you who jason white was or what he was famous for so i see you're not famous that's indeed yeah and and i just to me if you're writing music i'm a big believer in you write music if you write music and you're gonna be a touring band you're not later era the beatles you're not steely dan who only, who only did studio shit, or only do studio shit. After a certain point, Steely Dan was like, we're just a studio band. Um, you want to play shit that will work live. And if you're writing shit with two guitars in mind, it's gonna work better live. Again, you can do it, Without, with just one guitar. The four-piece still works that way. Sure. But I I think it, if you're going to do rock music, the two guitars really is the thing. Now, again, there are exceptions to all of these. I know there are four-piece bands like U2, Weezer, and Fall Out Boy, and Poison, and even LHR alums Coheed and Cambria. Which I forgot was a four-piece, and now I feel like I need to carve off my own tattoo <laughs> in, like, penance. And with, Jesus Christ, hey, two guitars. Indeed. Yeah. Um, most people can only name one or two members of those bands, if that, and those people are normally the primary songwriters. Claudio Sanchez writes all the songs for Coheed and Cambria. Um, you know, Pete Wentz and Patrick Stump write all the Fallout Boy songs. Right. Um, fucking Rivers Cuomo writes all the Weezer songs. Like, it just, that, that, okay. 
I know there are three pieces, like Rush, where every member is famous, and no side man is playing. You and I have both been to a Rush show before, and they do everything, just the three of them. That's why they had to take an intermission halfway through. And it's just, and, and like, I'm watching fucking Getty Lee sing these songs while playing keys and then switching over to bass and going back to keys. Yeah. Oh, how have we not talked about Rush extensively yet? Eh, you know, there's still time. All this to say, but when I think of groups where every member is a name and every member is involved and who are able to play all of their own stuff, it's four pieces that usually come to mind for me. It's the Beatles, it's Led Zeppelin, it's the Who and Queen, Red Hot Chili Peppers. I put all these in the notes. You named some of these bands. And I swear to God, I did not look at these notes. It's the Ramones, it's Metallica, it's Motley Crue, it's Rage Against the Machine, and it's Tool. Even Kiss works for this, and I fucking hate Kiss! <laughs> But the rock four piece just functions. It, it is, it really is to me the ultimate iteration of what rock music is and can be. Mm -hmm. I love Pink Floyd. And I do consider Pink Floyd a great rock band. But I don't see Pink Floyd doing the simplicity of, we'll even say Coheed and Cambria. Sure. Because Coheed and Cambria, they fuck with sequencers and weird keyboard shit and, and synth electric stuff. electric ukuleles. Yeah. They'll fuck around with shit like this. But what is the core of their sound? Two guitars, lead vocal. I think they have one, one of them does background vocals. I don't know. So have... actually both, both Travis Stever and the bassist whose name I can't remember because he's not the original bassist, do backing vocals. Okay, do backing vocals. Guitar, bass, drums, two guitars, three-part harmony, the perfect rock band. I don't think, I, I, I can't pick out a flaw. I, I think you figured out what a a very wealthy video game executive figured out with making the four piece the way to go. I you know I just I have heard a lot. There have been articles written on like the beauty of the power trio, how great the power trio is. It's fucking called the power trio. But I just. I don't know, man. The four-piece. The four-piece is what is... Old. Maybe it's the fact that I'm a Beatles fanatic, but, like, <laughs> the four-piece is some... always what has what has spoken best to me. I understand. There's just something about a quartet. And I know that you could expound ad nauseum upon this, but as we are coming up on minute number 50... Shall we move on? Let's talk about something I hate. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was going on that long. It's okay. I, I could not stifle your passion, and I would never try to. But, so, just to dive right into it, we're talking about Battlefield Earth. Dear listeners, if you have not heard of Battlefield Earth, don't worry. Alex, we got, and this, this came to me because we had a discussion about how the year 2000 is a benchmark year for film, which is a conversation for another time. And a good one. My, con, my, my question is, have you ever experienced the cinematic acid trip that is Battlefield Earth? No. 
The closest I ever got was I remember channel flipping once, seeing it was playing on TV, and I saw just John Travolta in whatever was going on with his body and hair indeed in that movie indeed i was like do i remember correctly that he had like giant dreads yes the alien species that he is a part of all have like giant massive weird heads and dreads and weird ass long beards and it's a whole thing and it's a fucking mess yeah so i saw this and and i shit you not i saw this he was talking and i went this looks stupid as fuck, and I kept channel flipping. Well, I am so glad for you and your experience. Um, dear listeners, starring Forrest Whitaker, Kelly Preston, leading man Barry Pepper, who is the sniper from Saving Private Ryan to everyone who just said who? Including me. And notable Scientologist celebrity John Travolta. Battlefield Earth is infamous as one of the worst movies ever made and one of the biggest financial bombs in all of modern cinema. But before it was that, Battlefield Earth was a pulpy science fiction novel written by love-hate guest of honor, L. Ron Hubbard. Emphasis on hate. Surprise! We're doing L. Ron Hubbard part two! Oh, God. I got so excited for this once I realized that it was an excuse just to talk a little bit more about that that awful old man. Um, because, yes, that, Battlefield Earth is a novel written by L. Ron Hubbard, who mm-hmm. is the founder of the Church of Scientology. Um, you know, before I can talk about the book, I need to bring listeners up to speed on the man who wrote it. And in case you missed it, a great place to do that is to pause this episode Go way back to our Triple Hate special on Scientology, which is like nearly three years old at this point. Listen to that. And in the first half, we talk extensively about old LRH, founder of Scientology, competent science fiction author, and kidnapper of his own children. Yeah. He just, there's, y'all, there's so much. Watch that episode, or listen to that episode if you haven't already heard it. I promise it is an hour and a half of entertaining if horrifying content indeed it's it's joyous in a depressing kind of way but without getting too much into a rerun i i want to talk about um the later years of his life which is something i think we kind of skimmed over very much so. so i'm going to pick us up in the year 1982 oh god in the year 1982, L. Ron Hubbard had been on the move across the country for six years and was currently on the lam slash in deep hiding, depending on who you ask, living in an RV traveling across the Pacific Northwest with his two most trusted aides. This man was married, and one day he just up and left his wife and grabbed his two most loyal Scientologist followers and just started, like crash uh, couch crashing and bought an rv and was driving around in an rv and this man is a fucking millionaire at this point Mm -hmm. so imagine old man l ron hubbard driving across the pacific northwest in a recreational vehicle he had essentially been the victim of an internal coup for leadership of the church by david miscavige who is also a goddamn awful human being indeed 
and was worried about a, quote, Nazi organization spying and undermining on the Church of Scientology, when in fact the organization spying and undermining the Church of Scientology was the IRS. Because despite being a, bil a millionaire, Elron Hubbard was not paying money. Uh, did he not have tax-exempt status at this point? No, time? he didn't, because that was the thing. L. Ron Hubbard was never smart enough to get the Church of Scientology tax-exemption status. <laughs> that was a miscavige ploy. And it ended up becoming a South Park episode. Indeed. So, he does not have, like, tax immunity because the government does not recognize what he is doing as a religious church thing. So he owes a bunch of money. He's driving around in an RV with two people who are not his wife but are married to each other. He is an old, old, sad, sick man. And it is under these conditions that he writes his first fiction novel in 30 years. When we talked in the previous L. Ron Hubbard episode, this man was prolific in, in two things. One, creating a fake religion. Two, writing fucking science fiction at a pace that was unhumanly. Like, if, if I remember correctly, like, the one thing that his editors would legitimately were like, this is incredible. It wasn't that his books were good. It was that he had this innate ability to churn out thousands upon thousands of words of yep. copy in the time that it would take another person to write 10,000 words he could do that in like something insane like a quarter of that amount of time he could write a shitty pulp novel in like the span of an evening and it would be shitty it would not be good. He wouldn't spend a lot of time editing it. And of course, with pulp novels, that wasn't common anyway. Edits would be minimal at best, but he was very good at just bullshitting stories on paper. Right. So this man, like, before he became a monster, was a half-decent science fiction author. And I only say de half-decent because of the output, not the quality. Indeed. The plot of Battlefield Earth is pretty simple. It is the year 3000, and humanity has been reduced to a tribal, caveman, nomad-esque state. The planet is ruled by the alien Cyclos, who are the creatures we were speaking about who have giant heads and white man dreadlocks, and who subjugate humans and make them mine for gold, because gold is the most precious mineral in all of the known cosmos. Our point of view character... Johnny Goodboy Tyler, which is the name of the character, is a human captured by a cyclo named Turl, a corrupt high-ranking official who makes Johnny mine a secret cache of gold Turl plans to steal for himself. There's a whole bunch of slave becomes revolutionary leader and defeats the evil invaders and breaks the shackles shit in the rest of the book and it's really not important. What is important are the reasons why I hate it. The first, it is a very poorly kept secret that when writing The Cyclos, the evil, despotic, cruel, de evil alien race that subjugates humans, L. Ron Hubbard was playing off psychologists. Cyclos, psychologists. Cyclos, psychologists. Which Scientology famously has a 
let's politely call it poor view of the practice of psychology. And who L. Ron Hubbard, because of this, personally despised because the American Psychological Association had publicly disavowed Dianetics, the Bible L. Ron Hubbard had written Quote unquote. in his religion to which Hubbard saw himself as both Jesus Christ and God. It was disavowed as a load of bullshit with no empirical evidence behind it. Yep. And L. Ron Hubbard took that personally and in a very petty move, writes a book where he's like, fuck these guys. I'm going to make them the bad, evil alien race, which like is mildly insulting. We know people in the mental health profession who like, I think are wise enough to not give a shit what old dead L. Ron Hubbard had to say about them. But like on principle, I just think it's petty and stupid, and I I, I don't hate it in the same way I hate bad things. I just hate it because it's so dumb. <laughs> I don't hate it like I hate bad things. I hate it like I hate dumb things. Number two, and I do hate this a little bit more. When Battlefield Earth, the book was released, it was an instant bestseller because the Church of Scientology released an internal mandate that all members of the church were required to buy no less than three copies per person. That's not as too much. Which, like, we... A conversation for another time is how, like, it seems like every book that comes out is a New York Times bestseller, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of, like... Oh, it's it's uh, absolutely scamming. It, it, it's scamming, yeah. and it's, it's bribing. I and... can No, I can straight up tell you, like, it's, it's a situation where, like, the people who... It's not that nobody on the New York Times bestsellers list got there legitimately, but a lot of the people who get there get there because effectively they or some organization they're a part of uh, or their LLC just buys a fuckload of copies of the book so that the initial sales are huge and then they just spend their time unloading it from there. Well, then that, that's kind of exactly what we have here. Only I would argue that is morally better than making every member of your church buy multiple copies of this book because your god leader happened to write it. Yes, one is a rich person buying a bunch of shit so that they can get a sticker on their book to hopefully sell more in the future. The other is manipulating your cult members. Yes, it's a rich person asking millions of poor people to spend their money on the thing. And I, I just, God, I fucking hate Scientology so much. <laughs> the third reason I hate Battlefield Earth, the book, is because of Battlefield Earth, the movie. Mm. Produced and funded by notable Scientologist John Travolta and a German distribution company. Written by the man who wrote Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Which is a good movie. Which is a good movie. And directed by the set decorator for Star Wars. That's a choice. That is a very important distinction. This man is the set decorator for Star Wars, the art decorator for Alien, mm. and the director-director of Battlefield Earth. His name is Roger Christensen. Battlefield Earth is a film that does not work on any actual level. And I have seen this film. Okay. Because my dad, being the fucking sci-fi nerd that he is, saw it on a blockbuster wall one day and was like, oh, this looks like it takes place in space. And 
bought it and we watched it as a family one night. And in hindsight, I am so goddamn thankful that my dad did not find a copy of Dianetics soon afterwards. Mm. It's a cool title. I will say that. It's a cool it's title. It's a cool title. Absolutely. However, it is also a film with acting that is just so abominable and lazy and every actor is chewing the scenery like a starving dog a contrite plot pretty much the same thing i just listed about you know a, a caveman human revolutionary and an evil corrupt alien bureaucrat who's played by john travolta who <laughs> tries to like scam his fellow aliens out of a bunch of gold and then then a bunch of people who are essentially cavemen or like at most like a tribal nomadic system they find an airplane bunker with fully fueled functioning harrier aircraft jets and secretly over the course of a couple of weeks they teach themselves how to be fighter pilots that is a thing that happens in the film i feel compelled listeners to remind you all that when L. Ron Hubbard was in the Navy, he um, somehow conned his way into a command post and launched a bunch of submarine mines that, uh, like, according to, like, the way he would tell the story was he won an important battle in World War II, and what everyone else who was there said was he launched a bunch of depth charges and hit nothing and wasted everyone's time also bombed mexico also bombed mexico also shot cannon from his his naval warship at the coast of mexico for reasons that are unknown uh... um back to the film the the plot is contrite the script is even worse uh, J.D. Shapiro, the screenwriter who also is best known for being the screenwriter of the film Robin Hood Men in Tights, publicly apologized and said that he deserved the Razzie that he won for the screenplay of this film. Um, and, and it's the year 2000. It's, it's a year after The Matrix comes out. It's the year that Fight Club comes out. It's the year Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon comes out. And this film, which, again, is mostly financed by John Travolta, has a constant overuse of green screen, bizarre color filters, and Dutch angles. Which, for those of you who are unfamiliar, that is when you take the camera and you put it at a diagonal. Mm. So you're like, like, tilt your head to the side, listeners, and, and you're putting your head at a Dutch angle. It makes the film visually unpleasant to watch. And, worst of all... Battlefield Earth takes itself far too seriously to even enjoy in any real camp cult ironic way like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or the, even The Room. I would posit that you will have more fun watching The Room with a bunch of your friends than you will Battlefield Earth because it is so bad you can't even like make fun of it. You can try. I, I You know what? I don't encourage you to try. <laughs> Oh, God. This is a film too awful to enjoy in any capacity. It is something that Forrest Whitaker has publicly stated regret for his involvement in the project. Would you make Forrest Whitaker upset? I take that shit personally. I was going to say, like, I respect the fuck out of Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> like, Kelly Preston is fine. Like, she's fine. 
she's married to John Travolta. I know that, but like as an actor, she is fine. But Forrest Whitaker is like important. Forrest Whitaker is a goddamn national treasure. I mean, you've got a, a, a like clearly doing it for work. Kim Coates. You've got uh, just a whole bunch of like, wait, who are they playing different aliens and shit? You've got Barry Pepper, who again, like these days, is very much a literal who. And the best thing I'll say about Barry Pepper's performance is when he found out he won a Razzie for worst worst leading actor, he was quoted saying, if I'd known I was going to win, I would have attended the ceremony. <laughs> J.D. Shapiro, Shapiro did. Like, yeah. he accepted his Razzie in person. He so. absolutely did, yeah. Like, I got respect for that. It is... Speaking of Razzies, um, I submit that empirically, Battlefield Earth is the second worst film of all time because it has won nine Razzies. And for those of you who don't know, the Razzies are the the anti-Oscars. They go to the worst films of the year. What do you consider the worst? Well, so there are only 10 Razzies. There are only 10 Razzie Awards given out each year. Battlefield Earth has won nine. It falls only to the Adam Sandler nightmare vehicle, oh, Jack right. and Jill. Which won all ten? Which has is the only film to have won all ten Razzies. And that is the one where Al Pacino plays a Dunkin' Donuts executive who sings for random reasons. Okay. Um, listeners, I'm going to make probably a mistake here and assume that at least some if not all of you also listen to uh andy and stephanie's podcast cult fiction don't don't do this to me (laughs) now on cult fiction andy and stephanie watch cult films many of which are absolute dog shit i have watched some god-awful films yes and famously like in this show they will frequently refer back to some of the worst films that they've ever seen. These include bad t- Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, yep. and Blood for Dracula. Indeed. Do you have anything else you'd put up there as just the worst of the worst, Andy? Uh, weird Science is a lot worse than people remember. And and I actually, I've pulled this up. The, the other notably god-awful film we've watched is the christopher lambert 1999 beowulf Mm, that's one i did not watch okay andy battlefield earth against those five movies i would absolutely watch blood for dracula over um over battlefield earth okay virgin blood virgin blood i would watch bad taste over battlefield earth because bad taste is a pre-filmmaker Peter Jackson inventing film technology and fucking around with his friends for five years. I love that film. It's it's not good, but it has a charm if you know the story. Indeed. Um, Weird Science, Gun to My Head, I would watch before Battlefield Earth. Okay. You've got a a pre-cocaine Robert Downey Jr. and a pre-SNL Anthony Michael Hall and a French supermodel who was way too good for the project. Um, And, oh, God. See, here's the thing. The two worst movies we've seen on Cult Fiction are Beowulf and Plan 9 for Outer Space. 
and it, both of those I think we have we have like coined as anti movies, especially Plan Nine is an anti movie. Where is it in? Oh God! Where is it? Okay, one at a time. Battlefield Earth and Beowulf. Beowulf. You'd rather watch Beowulf. I'd again. rather watch Christopher Lambert's Beowulf. Okay. Battlefield Earth or Plan 9 from Outer Space. Famously, one of the absolute worst movies ever committed to film. Indeed. See, here's the thing. I believe that if you gave Ed Wood the same money and technology like you transport Ed Wood to the to the 90s and you give him the same budget and you don't get you don't you change nothing else about the man's creative process you probably get a better film the only reason I'm I'm torn here like they are they are equally bad but Battlefield Earth came out 40 years later. Yes. And that makes it worse to me. <laughs> Battlefield Earth is not on the cult fiction list because it is not a cult film. It is a fucking abomination. <laughs> it is not something I would willingly subject my lovely co-host or anyone else to. <laughs> It is so bad, it's not even first place in a ranking of bad films. I'm going to end here with a quote from Roger Ebert, who, it, it, the more I read Roger Ebert stuff, I never watched him growing up, but I always just kind of knew the name. The more I read, the more I enjoy Roger Ebert. On watching Battlefield Earth, it is like taking a bus trip with someone who has needed a bath for a long time. It is not merely bad, it is unpleasant in a hostile way. I watched it in mounting gloom, realizing I was witnessing something historic. A film that for decades will come to be the punchline of jokes about bad movies. Battlefield Earth. Do not watch it. Do not... Like, if you're intrigued, I'm, I'm sure I can find... If you're intrigued, hit me up on Twitter and I will give you any number of bad movies that will be more enjoyable in Words of Time than Battlefield fucking Earth. Can I just share something with you? Of course. So I knew that Roger Ebert has a book of all his, like, the movies he hated the most. And I just pulled it up. It's called I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. It came out in 2000. <laughs> so even though it has 200 of Roger Ebert's most scathing reviews, I don't think it will have this one in it because it came out the same year as the movie. And that is for the best. This is something that this deserves to go in the same garbage dump in Arizona that they dumped all of those copies of E.T. for the Atari 2600. And on that note. And on that note, speaking of cancer. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, you gave the format. so <laughs> Jesus Christ, Andy. Whew. Okay. 
I, 28-year-old female, may have detected a cancerous lump on a guy, 25-year-old male, I hooked up with. I went clubbing downtown and met a bouncer and went home with him. I'm a resident cardiologist and diagnosing cancer is outside my specialty. However, I went to med school and I'm pretty sure I felt a lump on his testicle which seemed like it might be cancer. I told him, this might be cancer, I'm a doctor. He said, uh-huh, right, what's your favorite position? I didn't want to ruin the hookup so I didn't say anything at first and then I forgot about it. We didn't exchange numbers or anything. The problem is I don't think he took me seriously or even believed that I am in fact a doctor. I think it's something he really needs looked at. It's awkward because he never came to me looking for a medical opinion, yet I feel that I need to tell him that the lump is something to take seriously. Do I go back to the club and try to talk to him again? How do I start the conversation? What should I advise him to do if he doesn't have health insurance? So we need a name for this person. We do need a name. So this is the question asker is not a person with cancer. No, but it is a doctor. It is a doctor. It is a doctor who is had who is who has enjoyed uh, a couple uh, a one night stand. It seems. I'm mad we already used Doctor Elliot Reed. Yes. However, this does leave Doctor Meredith Gray of Gray's Anatomy. You know, I've never seen a single episode of Gray's Anatomy. The only thing I know about Gray's Anatomy is the lead person has like the amount of revolving door love interests that you would expect for the star of any TV show coming out in the aughts. Okay. I'm here for it. So Dr. Meredith Gray. God, Patrick Dempsey. Your choice, it's simple. Her or me. And I'm sure she's really great. But Derek, I love you. He used to be on this show. Indeed. How is it still? Shonda Rhimes created it? Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, this like made Shonda Rhimes Shonda Rhimes. This is the, this is the like nexus point of the Shondaverse. Why are medical shows the ones that are able to run for like almost 20 years? Because if Wait, you, Patrick Dempsey is still on this show? If you kill the lead actor in your medical show, you can just have an episode about how they die and everyone's okay with it. Jesus. Same thing with most CSI shows. All right. Anyway, Meredith Grey. All right, Dr. Meredith Grey. I read, Andy, do you want to start in on this? I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, the fact that he's such a dude bro really does not bode well. Because my my biggest thing is, like, if, if I was being involved with someone, um, and whether I know they're a medical professional or not, they sit here and go, I think I found a lump. We're done for the night. Because I'm going to the doctor. So the fact that this guy thought that this was somehow... A come on, or... Uh, I don't know that I'd take it based on this text as he thought it was a come on. I think it's more like, oh, he's just, like, not taking her seriously. Like, she's lying and, I don't know, being dramatic or joking or... The vague grossness of, of our Patrick Dempsey for this question aside... <laughs> Okay, hold on. I got I got to pull up. Patrick Dempsey in this show is Dr. Derek Shepard. 
There you go. How is he on this show as recently as last year? Oh, probably just as like a guest spot. Nah. But in any case, um, the general grossness aside, like the thing I, I would say is like you you stop. You, you stop, and, and I hear Meredith saying she didn't want to ruin the hookup, so she didn't say anything at first, and, you know, stuff happens, you forget about it. But, like, the biggest thing in, in hindsight 2020 is, like, you should have stopped and been like, no, I'm serious. I think you have cancer. This is probably something, like, you need to, at the very least, make a write on a sticky note that you're going to call in the morning and make an appointment, and then we can get on with stuff. But how do you find him? Like, there's there's so much stuff, like... I mean, okay, he's a bouncer. Presumably you can track him down again. I'm torn between a trope of event, uh, of Nightingaleism and this idea that it is in any way Meredith's responsibility as a woman to come and knock some sense into this guy's head and force him to do anything medical-related when they're not close like that i'm torn between that and the fact that like god i don't know if you if you think it's going if you think it's real and you have the knowledge base to back that up you do have kind of a civic duty you know what this makes me think of what so hockey big i'm a huge hockey fan we know this jesus christ go on something that happened a few months ago is um at a vancouver canucks game there was a woman sitting in the front row behind the team bench who noticed a mole on a equipment manager's neck and like knocked on the glass and like somehow handed him a note and was like, hey, I'm a med school student. That mole doesn't look right. You should get it checked out. Mm -hmm. And this guy was smart enough to do it and they caught cancer. Sure. She saved this dude's life because he was like, I was never going to look into that. And it's a good story. This this woman got like a, a, a fucking scholarship from the team to go to med school. And even without the reward, I think just that's that's what you're supposed to do. So like do no harm. I I think do no harm in this case is going back and manning up and putting on your professional like medical mindset and being like, hey, I had a lot of fun. I believe you have cancer and you need to go get it checked out. Insurance is a whole other bag of beans, but I think it is Meredith's responsibility to try and help this guy. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to zero in a little bit on something you said and give a similar but slightly altered take on it. You asked the question of if this is Meredith's responsibility. And I want to be very clear. Is it her responsibility? Does she hold any obligation to this? I don't believe that she does. Okay. Even with her Hippocratic Oath and all of that good stuff, she does not owe this dude anything. That said, it is a really wonderful thing that she cares enough just being a good person to try and do something good here. 
Sure. The question, and, and and you know what? I I don't disagree with her being like, yeah, I'm not going to ruin the hookup. This dude's not taking me seriously. I, I'm, you know, I want my nut and I'm going to leave. Like, I, I do not begrudge her that. Yeah. Very practically speaking, Meredith, if you, to me... This is this is the move. You can go back down to that club. Don't go in like your club and clothes or anything like that. Go. If you see him, you can be like, yo, do you have a break coming up? Can I talk to you? If he's not there, because you might go on an evening that he's not working. Mm. Go down there and write maybe a letter, put it in a sealed envelope and go talk to somebody and just be like, hey, listen, there's a bouncer here. Um, I, you know, I, I met him. I spent a little bit of time with him. I did not get, hopefully you have his name. I hope you have his name, even if you don't have the number, but you can be like, hey, listen, there was a bouncer here. Here's his name. Um, I promise I'm not trying to creep on anything, um, but there is um, something very serious that he should know. Um, here is, and you can leave like an envelope mm. with like a letter letting him know, hey, I think you didn't take me very seriously. I just need you to know I am a doctor. These are my credentials. I really do think you should get this checked out. If you want to, you could leave like your contact info so you can actually talk to him. But I think a letter will suffice just fine. Leave it with someone and just be like, hey, can you please just give it to him? Again, this isn't creeping or anything like that. I um, I just think that he does. this is some information that he needs to know. Um, more than likely in a place like that, especially if something like hooking up with patrons isn't an unusual thing, they will probably assume he's, he has he needs to get checked out for an STD. Just going to be honest. They're probably going to be like, oh, she found out she has HIV or herpes or some other thing that needs testing. Sure. And it's, it's letting him know that. And if they think that, fine, it sucks, but whatever. After that, after you go and you either talk to him or try to talk to him or you leave a letter or some kind of contact there, at that point, you are done. You don't have to keep going after him. You don't have to make it your responsibility to try and convince him to do anything. You don't have to continue to follow up with him. You have given him a genuine effort. Your obligations are done at that point. Beyond that, his life is going to be his own and he does need to hopefully take this shit seriously. Fair. I, you, you know what? Yeah, that... That is a, a very fair compromise from my stance. Yeah. And if he doesn't have health insurance, um, again, that one is definitely not your responsibility. Um, frankly, I mean, depending on where you live, you, you can straight up just Google a free clinic. Um, a lot of planned, actually, a lot of planned parenthoods will offer cancer screenings to men for free. So that is something to also look into if you are in a place that has an active Planned Parenthood. Um, hopefully you are. Um, but yeah, you can advise him to just do this Google search. Look for free clinics. Look for a Planned Parenthood. Look for a place that will do this kind of thing if he doesn't have health insurance. But honestly, that's not your responsibility. 
either. Um, it is a shit system in this country and health insurance being what it is, it is God awful that that's a consideration, but your job is done. And if you want to be a good person, this one little bit of follow-up is all you need. After that, you cannot save everyone. You're going to be, you're in, you're a fucking cardiologist. You need to understand that you cannot save everyone. Fair point. Yeah. So considerate practice. I can cotton with that. And I, I think that's great advice. Um, I think we're in agreement that there there is a measure of responsibility. It's just a question of how much exactly there is. So, you know, we absolutely wish Meredith the best. We wish Patrick Dempsey the best. I never <laughs> want to see somebody unknowingly just go around with testicular cancer. That doesn't sound fun. No. Um, and we hope that this message reaches them. If you have a relationship question, and it doesn't need to be so heavy as, hey, this guy I hooked up with might have testicular cancer, what do I do? Um, you can send those in. You can send in your pet relationship questions, your work relationship questions, your friend relationship questions, and we will take your hookup relationship questions. <laughs> you can send all of those to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. Please we, all. Yeah, we do hear, we hear that it helps people find the show. I don't fucking know if it actually does, but that's what we hear. That's what we're told. Sure. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, you can see what we're tweeting about, any random ass shit based on old topics or you can dm us your questions directly there or just you know hit us up talk to us we're accessible and we love to talk to anybody who's interested alex mentioned my other podcast cult fiction that i do with the incomparable stephanie johnson where we watch cult movies some of them are really shitty none of them are ever going to be battlefield earth i refuse <laughs> you would have to pay me real money to get me to sit down and watch that again. And I'm not going to make you do that. Instead, we're just going to keep watching cult movies. So you can find cult fiction everywhere you can find LHR. You can also find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JovoCop2113 or at Andy's underscore minis if you want to see my ever-growing mini collection. Indeed. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, chess.com, and Lychess at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. We really appreciate you. Please, as ever, tell your enemies. Bye.